Hello everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. Today, a real privilege to be joined by Reverend Evelyn Swertz, who is a priest in the Church of England, serving the Anglican Church of Luxembourg, where the chaplain is the Reverend Jeff Reed. She's a Dutch-born, British, Luxembourgish European who has lived in Luxembourg for the last 14 years, married to husband Michael, and they have four children and currently one dog and two cats. Evelyn, what a joy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Lisa. It's lovely to be here. It's really wonderful to finally get you here because I've been in awe of your journey to priesthood ever since you embarked upon it. So let's start there. Why did you decide to become a priest and what is the process involved? Uh, well, I could have to stop you right there. I didn't decide to become a priest at all. I don't think it's a career that people choose. I think it's more one that kind of comes to you and then you can accept or not. There's always freedom with God. So what happened with me was that for a long time already, I'd said, oh, I'd quite like to do a theology degree. When my youngest was one, I had this moment where certainly from my perspective, I would say God said it's time to stop talking about it and do it. And I know not everyone will interpret what happened to me in that way. And I'm fine with that. But that's how I understood that moment. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was a, a clarity of knowing that I couldn't argue with. Can I just ask you a little bit about that moment? Because I think a lot of us are told with all of the various self-help books and podcasts and various other streams out there, we're told to listen to our inner voice. Mm. You were obviously attuned to that inner voice, but how did it really manifest in you then? How did it come to you, this calling? Well, that wasn't the calling, actually. That's just the start of the story. I think the problem with describing the things of God, and this is where all the atheists will, you know, throw up their hands and go, well, <laughs> you see, <laughs> is that much of it is slightly beyond the capacity of the language that we've got, which is why you find that the mystics and people writing on spirituality are always reaching for metaphor. They're always using images that slightly capture, but not quite that thing that they're trying to get at. The Bible is full of that sort of language as well. And it's a bit of a sidetrack, but of course a big problem arises when we take those things literally that should perhaps be understood more poetically. So I can tell you that I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I think the best I can do, and I'm sorry that it's not very satisfying or neatly easy to put in a box, is that I just knew that I knew that I knew. And it wasn't something that felt like it came from within me, but how I could say it was something external. I don't have the words for that. I'm more of a doer than a beer. <laughs> so I immediately went off and did a load of research about, you know, where I should do this thing and came down to two options, which were both very good because they offered a distance learning program, which was the only thing I was going to be able to do in English. So one was the London School of Theology and the other was St John's College in Nottingham, which is now closed, but at the time was still doing things. And absolutely, for lots of reasons I won't bore you with, the logical thing was the London School of Theology. But again, there was that sense from within, from without, however, just a knowledge, no, you need to do St John's. So I signed up with St John's, I did the first year, absolutely loved it, loved it so much, so much more than my history degree. <laughs> um, really kind of found my thing with theology. 
At the end of that year, they were offering something called a Top Up Your Theology Week, which was not just for distance learning students, but for anyone, really. So I didn't go for a whole week. I'd never been away from my children before, but I did a few days. And uh, on the, my last evening, which was the Thursday night after chapel, one of the priests who had also come along as sort of professional development said to me, could I ask you a question? And I said to him, no good ever comes of that, but go on, hit me with it. <laughs> and he said, have you ever considered ordained ministry? And I had a kind of, you know, mind blown moment. Didn't really sleep that night, you know, it just stirred up so much stuff. So that would be, I would think, the moment of a call, which then triggers this whole process, which is very long, but it comes down to the fact that there is both a private, as in within me, as well as a public discernment process that happens where the local church community, as well as the national church, eventually come alongside and really test that vocation and say, well, are you actually being called or did you just eat something dodgy for breakfast? You know, that's that's what it comes down to. And having gone through that process, which it's quite rigorous and at times quite hard because you're forced to really look into yourself and not everything is always that shiny and bright and the kind of thing that you'd want to kind of display to the world. But that vulnerability is part of it. And yeah, the church decided that, yes, I was indeed being called. So then I went off for training for three years and did a, it was actually an MA in theology ministry and mission with Durham University, got ordained and here we are. And now, well, I've kind of done my junior doctor's year. I'm probably a senior house officer now. So still an apprentice, still learning. Well, we learn our whole lives, don't we? But officially still learning with the chaplain, Reverend Jeff Reed, as my what's called a training incumbent. Wow, <laughs> there's quite a lot in this. So let's just go back a little bit to your theology degree. For those who might not know what is in a theology degree, give us a flavour of what you learn. Obviously, it varies university to university. It does, it does. Because both of the ones I did, the one with St John's and then the one subsequently during training, were angled towards being prepared for ministry and not pure academic theology. They had a mixture of academic theology, which is things like learning about the Old Testament and the New Testament doctrine and let me think what else. But it was Christian-based theology. It then. was Christian-based theology, although in the MA I did do a module on in a sort of interfaith field and looked at the Quran and the Bible. Three years of the final degree. So this is an awful lot of time alongside being a mother and doing other things. How did you manage your time? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, with a lot of support, some improvisation, reasonably good organisation. I'm a good list maker. Support is the main one. Michael was fantastic, but also wider family, friends. And sometimes that support is practical. And sometimes it's just someone cheering you along and saying, you can do this. You'll get there. It's going to be OK. And speaking of family and friends, when you spoke to your children and your husband about your, I was going to say decision, but it's not a decision, um, <laughs> the choice that came to you, how did you explain it and how did they respond? Oh, well, the story with Michael's quite funny because I'd been very anxious about coming back and saying to him, I think I've had this call to ministry. And I got back and said, how was your week? La, 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 and we're talking. And he said, I've got something to tell you. 
And I said, I've got something to tell you as well. And he was like, okay, you go first. So I told him what had happened. And he was like, ah, you always get in there first. You're not going to believe me now. But whilst you were away, I just got this sense that you were going to come back and say, I've been called to ordained ministry. <laughs> so in, in kind of <laughs> Christian framing, in a religious framing, you might say that's a, an act of confirmation or it's just a random coincidence. And for the children, I think, well, at the time they were quite young still, so it didn't mean a huge amount to them. I think they have a mixture of pride. They love me. They are proud of me. They know I've worked hard and it hasn't always been easy to get to this point, however much joy ministry brings me. So there's that, but then there's also just their children and they want my time and attention and I'm at work. And there's four of them. Yes, there are four of them. <laughs> and, you know, I'm at meetings in the evenings. We do a lot of work with volunteers who have actual paid employment during the day. So, you know, when they might want bedtime cuddles and prayers, I'm like, I can't, I'm sorry. I mean, that side of it, I think sometimes is a bit difficult. But I don't know if that would be different if I was still teaching, for example, whether they would then be a little resentful of me being at school or having marking to do in the evenings or... I think they're proud of you being their mother and uh, showing them how to work hard and giving to the community. And also, alongside that, you are a female priest. I am. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> so that's another example you're setting them. You've got three boys, one girl. I do. So what do you feel about being a female priest? Not that you'd know the other side, but it's obviously something that's still quite unique mm. in this day and age. Yeah, it's an interesting one. In England, the church agreed that women could be ordained in 1992. And in 1994, about a thousand women who had felt called and been kind of waiting for this moment were then ordained. Some men left the church at that point, but some of them came back again, actually. And now it's very much normal within the Church of England. I would not be so exceptional if we were in England. In Luxembourg, we're in a Catholic majority country, so there are not so many of us around. I have only ever experienced wholehearted support and kindness. Do you think there's a change of foot in the Catholic world? I have no idea. I, I don't have my finger on that pulse. I can't comment. <laughs> um, but I have been told by Catholic women that when they see me wearing this clerical collar, for them it's a real encouragement. You are a role model, whether you know that or enjoy that or not, you are actually a female role model. Yeah. <laughs> I hope people take me with a pinch of salt. I think no, no, that you would should. probably be quite wise. You're a quiet and modest female role model. On the point of language, which you're exceptionally good at and multilingual, of course, as well. Could you tell our listeners what's the difference between a priest and a chaplain and a vicar and a reverend? Yeah, so reverend is the title, the same way that we might call some people doctor if they have a PhD or a medical degree or something like that. As people go up the church hierarchy, that title can change. So some people are the right reverend bishops, very reverends, are, I think uh, archdeacons or something. I don't know, I can't quite remember either, but it's all there online if you happen to need it. Vicar and rector, and I never remember the details of this, but it's something historic to do with who owned the land that the priest was living on 
and where the rents were coming from and something along those lines. Down to taxes. It yeah. always is somewhere. <laughs> In the end, it's always about the money. <laughs> Follow the money. That's so funny. Um, that's why you get some people who are called vicars and some people who are called rectors. In the diocese in Europe, we have a chaplaincy because it's not a parish church. In England, the whole of England is divided first into dioceses, which have a bishop on top of them, and then the the diocese divided into parishes, and each one has, in theory, a parish priest. That's the established church. That's not us here. So we are really a kind of offering a service to anyone who speaks English who would like to worship in an Anglican way. And that's why it's a chaplaincy, in the same way that in a hospital or in a prison or in a school, you might have a chaplaincy where there is a religious service being offered to a particular community. Chaplaincies have chaplains at the top of them. And my official title is assistant curate, but that tends to get abbreviated to curate, meaning trainee priest, although I am already a priest. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm any the wiser, no. but I know that it's all there on Google somewhere. <laughs> you asked the question and I thought, mm, I'm not sure you want to go. It, it, I knew it was quite complex. You did mention the community and let's dive into that then, because the Anglican Parish of Luxembourg, you centre the community around three calling points. We have been discerning particular callings for us as a community, a church community, always has a general calling to, well, to put it really bluntly, love God and love neighbour, to worship and to care for and about and alongside the wider world. The second Sunday of February in British churches is officially Racial Justice Sunday. And we marked that Sunday as a church community in our service. And as a result of that, a whole string of conversations started because we're a very international church got people from, I don't know, probably about 30 different nationalities. You know, we're saying, well, what does it mean to belong? What does racial justice look like in the context of our community? And so out of that conversation, we've kind of said, well, we are a diverse community, ethnically diverse, but diverse in other ways as well. We're not all Anglicans. We have people from different denominations as well as no particular denominational affiliation. We have, of course, all ages. We have different worshipping preferences. We have people who like the traditional Anglican hymns as well as people who prefer more contemporary music. There's lots of ways that communities are diverse. So we want to kind of acknowledge that, which is easy to say, but to actually make that happen takes a lot of reflection and a lot of hard work. It means that the people who hold the centre space, who create the idea of what is normal in our community, need to recognise that that's what they're doing. They need to think about how power works and how identity works and how there may be sort of porous fences up that would be better if there was no fence at all. I was going to ask two questions. One is who holds that centre space because you almost need to have a diversity in that centre space in order to reflect the community that you want to engage with. And then how do you hold yourselves to account and know whether you're doing a good or not good job? Well, to take the second point, I would almost say back to you, who is the you? Because there is... The you being the community that you want to serve and uh, and the you that is the centre space as well. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so I think there is a sense of 
the leaders have to set a tone. They have to give permission for the conversations. They have to give permission for people to speak. They may need to say to some people, it would be good if you listened for a while. (laughs) They may need to say that to themselves as well. I think the hope is that because we're having these conversations, because we're bringing these things out into the open and to the surface, that that in itself acts as permission giving that people who may feel actually it's not working for me, I'm not feeling like I belong, can then ring on the bell and actually say that, that there has been a permission to to do that. You know, how do we make the church a welcoming space for people with disabilities? Whatever their socioeconomic background, whatever their level of education, there's all sorts of ways that we can accidentally exclude. Even a simple thing like we have a hearing loop in the chapel, well, that is inclusive for people who need hearing aids, right? So it can be simple things. Yeah, my hope is that because we're being explicit about this, that people would feel that there is permission to say and that they would feel that they have a place at the table and join this diverse and inclusive community that we have and that they would feel welcome. And then your second point for the community and as a chaplaincy, as a chaplaincy, church, how about church community? As a a church community is to be a prayerful community that seeks to act with integrity. So just uh, explain this out a little bit. So um, there's a time to pray, but there is also a time when your prayers need to have hands and feet. And... um, (laughs) I don't want to diminish the heartfeltness of when people offer thoughts and prayers, but it can quickly become cheap, right? You know, thoughts and prayers, but actually we'll just leave you on your own to deal with whatever you're dealing with. But there's a real heart for justice, and I guess it links to the previous point as well about belonging, but there is a heart for justice in our community. And for a very long time already, before it was a thing, we had an environmental footprint group that was looking at how can we as a community do all we can to look after the earth. That's obviously become a thing that's much more of a talking point now. And we continue to be engaged prayerfully and practically. One thing has been doing a Rocha UK-based environmental charity as a thing called depending on your pronunciation, echo church or eco church. (laughs) (laughs) And that asks church communities to look at their environmental impact in all sorts of ways, but also what happens in the worship, what happens in the liturgy, what happens in the preaching, what individuals do in their lives, how they're engaged in the wider community and so on. So we've been working on that and we hopefully will get our little award from them soon. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Not there yet, though. So let's not count our chickens. And alongside that environmental stuff, there's care for the wider community. So collections throughout the year for food banks. We've done care packages for women in the foyer here of sort of nice toiletries and things like that. At the moment, we're doing what we call Joy in a Box It's a bit like the Christmas shoebox, but the boxes, the gifts will go to children in various foyers here in Luxembourg. So that's where the acting with integrity. And we know we're all hypocrites. We're all going to fail. We could all do more. But that, for me, is not an excuse to do nothing. You actually said at the beginning that you were unsure about the priesthood because, you know, when you reflect deeply on yourself, you said, 
not everything is shiny and bright, but I think that makes a better priest because I think if you had a perfect priest, whatever perfect is, it wouldn't be good enough for the community parish, the people that you want to serve because they want somebody who can understand what it's like to be imperfect. So, so long as we're trying and continually trying and failing, then I think that's more important. And God's grace is big enough for all of us. Thank Bigger goodness. Than all of our failures. <laughs> that's <a> relief. <laughs> it, you know, it's an invitation to live life in its fullest. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the third pillar is a worshipping community that invites questions. So this tallies with number one in a way, in the sense that you elaborate, say, to make space for questions and doubt and uncertainty. Yeah. And that chimes very much with COVID as well. It does indeed. Yeah, we have this third calling to be a worshipping community that invites questions. I'd like to think the worshipping community bit is reasonably obvious that a church is called to worship. We might emphasise that sense of community, that although we arrive as individuals, we are a family, spiritually speaking, so we are a community caring for one another. But we want to be open to questions. And that strikes me as so profoundly important because a lot of religion is about certainty. It's about saying this is how it is and if you jump through these hoops, if you tick these boxes, if you believe these things, you know, like the stuff going into the sausage machine, out at the other end will come this lovely little grillwurst. Um, and, you know, all these guarantees about life and this is how it works and everything fits. And the reality is that life is not like that. The classic one is why do bad things happen to good people? But in all sorts of ways, life is challenging and difficult and we all have things that don't work out and places of pain from the past or in the present, hurts that we carry, shame that we carry, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. And I think certainty is, is the worst thing, actually. I think we need that space to have our doubts, to ask the hard questions to maybe not have the answers as well and to just go, I want there to be an answer. I want it to be clear. I want it to be certain. And it just, it won't fit and that hurts more. Mm -hmm. um, and for that to be safe. And I think the thing about COVID and the pandemic is that everything we thought we knew about how life, or a lot of what we thought we knew about how life worked, suddenly didn't fit anymore. And all the things we used to be able to do, we couldn't do. And the expectations we might have had, you know, even things that are really painful, like attending the funeral of loved ones, suddenly that was gone or having guests at your wedding or, you know, going to school normally, <laughs> you know, all of that was gone. And so it really brought to the surface this sense of, yeah, uncertainty and being in this liminal space where what we thought where everything was how life was has kind of gone, but we don't really know what it's going to be like or even when it's going to be like whatever it's going to be like. So there is a sense of that uncertainty. And I think COVID brings a lot of theological questions as well. Like, where is God in the midst of a pandemic? You know, people have, not in my community, but I am aware of people asking things like, did God cause it as a punishment? Is God going to heal it because he loves us? Don't ask me to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, you know, they are good questions, right? But my feeling, the more I reflect on... But you will have thought about it. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I have answers. And I think that needs to be okay. (laughs) Yeah, so living with the uncertainty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And the more I've thought about it, though, the more I feel like what COVID has done is shown that what we thought was secure and true was actually uncertain and liminal as well. It's just brought to the surface what we we thought everything was neat and packaged and certain but it never really was and now that's really obvious for all to see and in a space like that which is very vulnerable and it's very fragile and there's a lot of pain there needs to be that that space for questions did covid times bring more people to the church um yeah, yes, in some ways for us it has. We moved, like all the churches, online, and that was well received. And some of the things that were very nice were that, for example, grandparents joined their children and grandchildren in church, which would never have been possible when, you know, they're living in England or America or Germany or wherever they might be. And then they're all together, actually, being community. And I think there's also been a lot of renewal where some of where how we used to do things doesn't work anymore. That creates a space for new things to grow. And that's quite exciting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we have got a lot of new things going on. You know, there's an alpha course coming up next term, school term, which is very much a space for asking questions. But it's also about how we do children's ministry, that we're not seeing children as empty vessels that, you know, you tip back their heads and open their mouths and pour the knowledge in. But <laughs> they wouldn't allow you anymore, I don't no. think. <laughs> but, but actually, as people who are loved by God and have their own relationship with God and their own questions and their own spiritual growth and that there is mutual learning going on and that they need to be allowed to ask questions and not be told glib answers, mm-hmm. but actually given space for wondering Mm-hmm. And with COVID, we also saw huge loneliness. How did you deal with loneliness in the community? Ah, well, we did, uh, crikey, my brain's gone blank about precisely what we called it, but the name is probably less important than what we did, which is that um, at Christmas and at Easter, sort of at the height of the pandemic, Delivering cheer, that was it. Delivering cheer, love it. So um, everyone who was on our contact list, a group of volunteers, we divided over geographical areas and they just went door to door and I think at Christmas gave a little candle and a greeting and just to check in on people whether they were all right. So there was a lot of... Neighbourly contact. yeah, Yeah, formed that way. That's lovely. Um, I love that. Delivering cheer. Yeah. How festive. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go into the, the festive nature of things, and we're coming up to our second Christmas with COVID. How do you deal with people who come to you with their pain or their grief or if they happen to have lost somebody? Actually, today, this day we happen to be recording this interview is the one year anniversary of my own father's death. So those who deal with grief and particularly carrying the grief alone around Christmas time, how do you support them in that grief? Well, that would fall under the, the category pastoral care. For me, and I'm fairly certain I speak for Jeff as well, the first thing is a safe space for listening. Because I think the loneliest 
thing is carrying something alone and to be allowed to voice things, to be allowed to articulate them and for that to happen in a place where it will be held confidentially and there won't be any judgment passed on whatever the, the story is, that to some extent alleviates loneliness because the person is no longer alone in carrying it. And the second thing is the question, how can I pray for you? When you were talking about sharing that grief or loneliness or pain, it did make me think that for those who may not even believe in God, the idea of prayer and sharing that with whatever one conceives as God is already sharing that pain with another. So I can imagine, and I do pray actually, but for those who don't, the idea of prayer is also a sharing it is. Yeah, it's an articulation. And then when it's out there, it's easier to see what it is precisely and therefore to deal with some of it and to turn it upside down and see what falls out and then deal with that. But we also have a service that we do. Absolutely delighted to be doing that together with All Nations Church um, this year on the 22nd of December called Light for the Darkness. And that is a recognition that Christmas really isn't easy for everyone. It may be like you, that you are grieving a loss. It may be like the children I met the other day who one of them was like, well, yeah, we were going to go to this country to have Christmas with family, but now we can't travel. So-and-so was going to, you know, granny was going to come and visit us, but it's not possible. You know, those kind of losses people who are divorced, who maybe are not with children, or it's the first Christmas where it's not the family together as it would have been, people who are struggling economically, of whom there are more now because of the effects of the pandemic and can't participate in the way that they feel they're supposed to in this frenzy of buying and giving and all the rest of it. There are so many places of pain that individuals have But there's also a lot of pain around the world. The angels say peace on earth and goodwill to all men, but there is no peace on earth, right? There's a lot of people who are going to be facing this Christmas hungry, facing it worried for their lives, facing it as refugees in temporary accommodation. So this light for the darkness service, it's two hours where our chapel is open for private prayer. People can just come in and out as they like. And then at seven o'clock in the evening, a short service with music, quite contemplative, quite quiet, just an opportunity to to bring either our own hurts or the pain we know that people we love are carrying or the pain we know that is in the world and that we need to be real about and just bring it to God and open it to his love and trust in that light. Share it together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Moving on to the heart of Christmas and the Church of England's Christmas theme this year and your services. Tell us, beyond just that service, what else you have in store? On Christmas Eve in the afternoon, we do something called Wondering and Wondering, which comes back into that asking questions thing again, the wondering with an O and wondering with an A. (laughs) Um, And in this case, it'll be a very short walk around the Cock Park. And on that very short walk, so that we don't get too cold, um, (laughs) there will be the Christmas story retold in story, song and play. um, And there'll be a little thing to take home at the end. So that's, again, very much for young families, although everyone is welcome, always. And then Christmas Eve, obviously, it's the midnight 
which starts at 11 o'clock in the evening, confusingly, but we're finished at midnight. This is my favourite thing. Yeah, it's it's such a beautiful, quiet... Midnight mass. Midnight mass. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's always my favourite thing, in fact. And then Christmas Day in the morning um, at 10.30, we'll have a, an all-age communion service. That's wonderful. So, so much yeah. to look forward to. RTL Original Podcast. And then finally, I just wondered if you could give us a reflection yourself for the whole community of Luxembourg, whether they're Anglican or not, Yes, just for the Christmas period, the holiday period. Yes, um, I can do that. Like Blue Peter, which not all of your listeners may have heard of, <laughs> children's programme from I don't know when, but they had a tagline of saying, here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> um, and this is indeed a case of here's one I prepared earlier. So it's called um, Cattle Poo at Christmas. Oh, okay. (laughs) Unexpected title there. (laughs) Yeah. I'll leave you to translate cattle poo into words that are not suitable for public consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Or for ministers in God's church to say, allegedly. Uh So um, this reflection actually starts with a question, as all the best things do, as we've discussed, although this is not a deep and meaningful question. This is just the question whether you have a favourite Christmas carol. And maybe I'll ask you, Lisa, do you have a favourite Christmas carol? Oh, golly, I love Christmas carols. It's one of the things I miss the most. Um, this, yeah, it's, I think it's Benjamin Britten, this little babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Siddons Fold. Oh, hell to that. Da, 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 da. Um, I know it because it's like um, an echo. You have two-part harmony and mm. it's just, uh, for me, such a, uh, musically, it's just so um, shockingly vibrant. Mm. Are you a singer? Yes. Would you like to sing it? <laughs> Well, at least one of the parts, or is that too mm. scary for the... This little babe, so few days old, has come to rifle Satan's fold. All held a thad, his Gosh, beautiful. <laughs> no, not it really. Is. <laughs> it is. And considering you can't do the two parts, that's particularly <laughs> clever. Um, and it's not one I know, actually. I'm so going to Google it. <laughs> when, when I get out of here, I'll be on Spotify looking that one up. So anyway, this thing about Christmas cows, I'm not talking about the wider genre of Christmas songs, because of course there's that <clears throat> famous one by Wham, which will should remain unmentioned in case we all get it stuck. <laughs> in our heads for the next month. An earworm. But really, yeah, earworm. Really the old-fashioned Christmas carols. And I'm wondering actually whether you, your listeners, whether you prefer those big soaring ones like Hark the Herald Angels Sing or O Come All Ye Faithful. Or maybe you lean towards the the more meditative ones like Silent Night or O Little Town of Bethlehem. Classics for the Midnight Mass, those ones. Just so lovely. Or maybe you're one of those people who likes the ones in minor keys like the Coventry Carol. Oh, lovely. Beautiful. God rest you merry gentlemen. Yes. That kind of Absolutely wonderful. Um, And I think regardless of whether people are Anglicans or not, indeed, whether they're Christians or not, these Christmas carols are known, right? They're piped around all the stores and Christmas is as much a cultural thing as it is a a religious thing now. Well, as we've discussed, I have children and that means I'm also familiar with all these alternative lyrics. So the fact that Batman smells, (laughs) Robin laid an egg and, you know, the highly flavoured gravy one? No. You know, um... The angel Gabriel from heaven came. Yeah. Yeah. And then it ends the about the highly favoured lady. Yes. Right. Highly flavoured gravy is the, 
<laughs> alternative there. And it's where, you know, in that case, you've got these existing texts that kind of experience a sort of sonic shift where the, the vowels and the consonants just change enough that you get a new meaning created. Yeah. And the thing is that this actually happens with some of the lyrics of the carols as well. So <laughs> it's not the words so much that change as a shift of ideas. So we take this original heart of Christmas. You asked me about the heart of Christmas, this Church of England campaign this year. And it's this unfathomable mystery, really, of God coming to earth as a vulnerable human baby in an occupied state with deep poverty. And somehow that shifts into something which, I don't know, is more comfortable than that idea. The idea that God would be that vulnerable, that he would come into a place of so much pain is troubling the more you think about it so I think we we do things with the lyrics of carols not just about Batman smelling but just to make it fit more with a, a neat and tidy jolly Christmas and as a result of that Christmas carols tell lies <laughs> they do this is where the cattle poo comes in <laughs> and you may know these carols and love them and you know, every year those lyrics come back and the tunes haunt us well into January. You know, who hasn't been there on the, the 10th of January going, oh, <laughs> But in between those angels and the shepherds and the Gloria in excelsis deos and the fa la 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 I don't know how many lasts there are. <laughs> Tucked away with baby Jesus in the manger are these whopping piles of cattle poo. <laughs> And, you know, maybe it was because those were the only rhymes that the writers could find. And maybe they just liked the ideas. Maybe their theology was a little off because of some dodgy Sunday school teaching. But alongside this, like, high theology of God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, there are lines that just plain stink. So here's one. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes... Do you recognise it? Yes. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes away in a manger. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Perennial favourite. But yeah, no. The whole point of Christmas from a Christian perspective is this astonishing claim that whatever we understand this thing called God to be, that God came to be with us as us, not as some sort of uncrying baby who never needed a nappy change. And whilst we're on the subject... I suspect how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given is also a big fat lie, however glorious that carol might be, because I sincerely doubt that Mary kept quiet during labour. Oh, no, no. That would be a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> then again, it all was. Yes. <laughs> the point of it all is that it's real, it's human, it's messy, fragile, vulnerable and uncertain. As a grown man, Jesus wept on more than one occasion. He cried because even though he knew the end of the story and knew everything was going to work out okay, it's still right to be grieved in the moment and to weep with those who weep. That is love. Jesus the baby and Jesus the man wept. God cries with us and for us and alongside us. The heart of Christmas, a baby who cries, says that God knows our pain and is with us in it. There's another carol that tells us that. The second verse of Once in Royal David City says, He was little, weak and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness. And he shareth in our gladness. Why? 
because God loves each of us. A God who is with us, as Emmanuel means, who knows our pain from the inside and is alongside us in the midst of it, can celebrate with us too. God both gives joy and shares in ours. And why? Because God loves us. So whatever Christmas means to you, whether it includes that Christian perspective or not, I hope and pray that you will find it to be full of joy and love and lots of great music. Thank you so much, Evelyn. Yes, I did look up the hymn, This Little Babe So Few Days Old. It is by Benjamin Britten, a whole piece he wrote, actually, uh, for, for Christmas time. And uh, it's, I think, really extraordinary. I remember learning it as a teenager and it's just stuck with me all my life. But the other beautiful, beautiful hymn that I hope many of our listeners can look up if they don't already know it and enjoy it, is the Wexford Carol. Mm. To our listeners, I would just love you to write in and tell us about how you are celebrating or thinking about Christmas this year, whether with or without family, and to know that you do belong to a community and in whatever way you formulate your community, it's just a matter of as I always think, reaching out and making that first step to have a small conversation, a small hello, and you never know what unfolds from there. And of course, that's not just the purpose of the Anglican Church, but it's also sort of the purpose of RTL today to create a community here of so many denominations and everyone is included. And at this Christmas time, we all wish each other a very happy, restful, peaceful Christmas whether with family or with family at a distance, we're all in the same boat. So wishing everyone a lovely, lovely Christmas. Every blessing to you and all those whom you love this Christmas and always. I'm going to write that down. It's such a great title, Cattle Poo at Christmas. <laughs>